0: This is Ben Charles with your episode 272 of the At Percussion podcast. Today is February 7th, and if you're listening to this, it's being released on February 18th. With me, as always, are Carly Vina. Hey, Carly.
1: Hey, Ben. How's it going?
0: I'm doing well. How's your semester getting off to? A, are you getting off to a good start here?
1: Yeah, gosh, it feels like we're already pretty far in. This is like week four or five, something like that. Yeah, I think we're,
0: we're going into week four here. Yeah.
1: What, what month is it? What year
2: is it? <laughs>
0: 2020 is almost over. and uh, <laughs> Ksenia, as always, lovely to see you.
2: Hi, Ben. Lovely to see you. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Things are going very well here. And Casey Cangelosi.
3: Hey, Ben. How's it going, buddy?
0: Hey, I'm doing well. What happened today in history? Or excuse me, on release day in history, Casey, February 18th.
3: Yeah, sure. So I've got a uh, audio clue for you, and it's about this drummer, Clyde Stubblefield, and this particular beat. So that's one of the most sampled beats out there, and it's sometimes referred to as the funky drummer beat. And that's because uh, Clyde Stubblefield, he died uh, four years ago today, February 18th. So in 2017, we lost Clyde Stubblefield, and he was known as the funky drummer. And that's one of the most sampled beats all throughout 1980s and 1990s. It was used in uh, hip-hop acts, including Public Enemy, New World... um, Uh, NWA, LL Cool J, Run DMC, and the Beastie Boys. And later, more recently, Ed Sheeran and George Michael have used that exact beat. That was me playing it just uh, earlier uh, today, just to try to avoid copyright. And this is made famous by James Brown in the song called Funky Drummer. And it's it's interesting, like, you know, this was this looped beat by these hip-hop artists. And James Brown, I mean, obviously we don't think of this... Clearly, '70s funk, but we don't we don't think of James Brown as hip hop whatsoever. But the way he kind of riffs over that beat, it's very much in the style of uh, how how a hip hop artist might riff over that beat. So uh, that chunk of the song, I've actually got it right here for you. Hopefully, we don't get flagged for uh, for that. But right here, this little beat comes comes in. 84. <laughs> 84. So there's your there's your James Brown for you. And uh, yeah, you can kind of imagine, like, if I play this a little here, I think I can kind of, see, I can kind of riff like James Brown over it. Watch this. So here it is one more time. You can kind of imagine. That. Come on, beautiful. Come on. There we go. Ah, uh, nobody's laughing. Oh, well, that's it. I was laughing. I was just muted. <laughs> Come on. So anyway. Clyde Can't Stubblefield, the funky drummer, super sampled uh, beat in history today, on February eighteenth.
0: Wasn't wasn't there some? I think there was a news story a while back about there was a controversy that I I'm, don't quote me on this. I'm probably totally wrong, but I think he was
3: only paid for the session and like never actually collected royalties on it or something like that. You're right. I found a little quote. He never got any royalties on that. Uh, and of course, he you know, I, I mean, I guess you know he doesn't own it. The record company owns it, but yeah, he should still get some royalties. He said uh, in a quote, the never getting royalties never bothered him but he found it unfair like it's unfair but it doesn't bother me and i guess uh, f- fairly recently like in the i think i read 1997 he recorded an album called the revenge of the funky drummer kind of like to to i don't know to make a point about what you just said gotcha yeah,
0: yeah and i think uh, we might have even talk about it on the podcast there was some story a while back of there was some guy that like his like opus magnum was was studying that one beat and trying to like replicate it perfectly. But uh Casey, your little James Brown riff thing reminds me there's this uh there's an Eddie Murphy bit in some of his 1980s comedy about uh James Brown talking to the band and he yeah. Sort of
4: like,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know
1: about you guys. I think probably we should always start each episode with a little James Brown.
3: I can I could riff over that beat any anytime you want.
1: New intro. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> when
3: when I when when I introduce our guest today, could you just riff over that? I've got it. I think we could ask Steve to do that.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, One other thing. A uh, past guest of ours, Zach Browning, wonderful composer, very inspired by James Brown, talks about uh, like if you take cold sweat. Like, can you imagine transcribing James Brown's melodic line? How it has so much melisma to it. It's interesting to think about. But anyway, thank you so much, Casey, for that. Our guest today is composer Stephen Bryant. Stephen has been commissioned by such notable groups at the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, and the BBC Singers. His teachers include John Corigliano, Cindy McTee, and Francis Macbeth. His work often incorporate live electronics, especially his breathtaking ecstatic waters that many of us have performed. So welcome to the podcast, Steve Bryant.
4: Thank you, thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, just to get us started here, Steve, obviously you are uh, often known as a, a band composer and I've noticed that your catalog encompasses works all the way from like beginning band works to a trombone concerto for Joseph Alessi and it never really registered in this way till I was actually reading your bio, getting ready for the podcast. And uh, you said that your father was a music educator and you actually took to heart sort of the the idea of of giving musicians of all uh, experience levels, uh, quality music to play. So could you tell us a little bit more about that?
4: Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I should make note of the James Brown connection. My dad actually was a great trumpet player. And in the, I think the seventies, he was one of the pickup horns for when James Brown came through town in Little Rock, Arkansas. So Whoa. he played with James yeah. Brown. Cool. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he, he was a great, great, really soulful player and a music educator. And yeah, I think that both my parents uh, were public school teachers, uh, my mom elementary school. And so that's really, really important. I, I saw firsthand that I didn't have the stamina to actually be a teacher. That's really a lot of work, um, but absolutely how important it was. And in music education, I, I mean, I never, I've never thought of music for young musicians uh, as inferior or less important than something for a professional orchestra. I mean, as the the meme goes, if you want to have this professional musicians, you have to have this youth uh, music, and it's absolutely true. And I so, my approach has always been to what would have to write something that would have caught my attention when I was that age and made me think about that, about sitting in band or orchestra as a ninth grader or a seventh grader, and thinking about that rather than the girl I had a crush on, or what's for lunch, you know, but really be in that moment and engage me. So, I always try to create with that in mind, it's very difficult. Writing music for young musicians is one of the most difficult things to do.
0: I just had a, a funny anecdote one of I, the first piece of steve's i think that i ever played was ecstatic waters which is obviously on the the higher end of the spectrum there but uh one of the ones that i encountered shortly after that was uh is it the machine awakens
4: yeah the machine awakes yeah, yeah
0: machine awakes yeah it's it's a sort of middle school level band piece with electronics it's sort of ecstatic waters junior junior <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. by younger players um and i i i will not name any names here but i saw like like a middle school honor band do it and uh the conductor was not so great. And uh, the conductor was reading Steve's writing, and the conductor was like, The machine, sentient, that's his name. I was like, No, no, no. That's a vocabulary word that Steve threw in there. Oh.
4: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wow, that's a new one. I haven't heard that before.
0: <laughs> but I very distinctly remember from the program notes that used the word sentient, and that conductor clearly had no idea what that meant.
4: Well, education never stops, does it?
0: <laughs> so thank you for educating all musicians, young and old.
4: <laughs> wow, I didn't even think about that. Oh, well, I'm glad they did it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, cassini I think you had something.
2: Uh, sure. I was going to say the program notes should come with a little vocabulary, just just in case for those of us. But uh, speaking about your beginnings, I thought that your bio was really funny. And because it says you trained for one summer in the mid 80s as a breakdancer, yeah. inspired by your mother. And then you were the 1987 radio controlled car racing Arkansas State champion.
4: Indeed I was.
2: Can we know a little <laughs> bit more about these episodes? Sure.
4: Heard? Um I mean, one, I hate bios, so I tried to find the most ridiculous but true things I could to put in there, you know. Um, it
3: worked. <laughs>
4: good. Yeah. So I was in the early 80s. I'm this is probably 83. I don't know. It was the height of break dancing when it really broke out and became, you know, it invaded the suburbs and became a mainstream thing. And <laughs> so my mom signed me up for break dancing lessons that summer that it was hot. You know, Thriller was out and we learned the entire Thriller dance and all of that. I think I was. Let's see it, Steve. Let's see it. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to (laughs) happen.
2: Not the right pants right now, man.
4: We already talked. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wrong pants and and not enough uh, beverage. So that summer, yeah, for the word trained, that's a little bit of an overstatement. I was forced into a summer's worth of lessons by my mom, but I learned how to moonwalk and I can do the wave. So, you know, that's about it. Those are my party tricks and then mm-hmm. the radio controlled car racing. I w- I actually wanted to be a race car driver, but my mom said that wasn't going to happen. So I guess music was my fallback career. Um, and I, I got really into racing. They're about 10th scale electric cars off-road and got really into it. And we had a whole state championship and I won. <laughs>
3: when did, wow. when did music start, you know, taking over these other interests or did it stay well, right off for a while?
4: I was 15 when I won that. I was 87. Yeah, I'm old. Um, And so then I went to college in 90. And that's when I'm music sort of because I majored in music from the beginning. So I wrote music all in high school, uh, but I, you know, I made no distinction between writing a piece for my high school band or pet band arrangements for the basketball games or cheesy new age stuff on my synthesizer. It was all the same activity. But then it got serious when I majored in music and thought, like, oh, I, I should think about my future.
0: Well, I actually wanted to ask you specifically about your studies in music, because I think many people in our field are familiar with John Corigliano, who's of course written a wonderful percussion concerto and Sydney McTee, who's on the sort of cutting edge of music always and teaches at University of North Texas. But I know your first, uh, at least college composition teacher was uh, Francis Macbeth, who is a name that is less familiar to many of us. And I knew his piece in high school of sailors in Wales, which is like an, an old time band classic piece. Um, But could you tell us about studying with Francis Macbeth and what he was like? Uh, And I know he passed away, I think in 2012.
4: Correct. He was wonderful. I I mean, I was very fortunate. I had three fantastic teachers uh, and can't stress the importance of that. For anybody who's watching and you're looking for a mentor, teacher, whatever you're studying makes a huge difference. he was hilarious really opinionated but in a great way like he had very clear this is how you do this and this is how it works and um and as a first composition teacher it was perfect i mean he was really popular in the band world from the 70s through the 90s very very uh, very popular in that niche at that time his pieces were played everywhere he was just an hour away from me in arkansas at this college and we just hit it off um personal level and he's all about motivic development and about economy of materials and so that was just kind of drilled into me you know how a piece is going to end before you start it structure direction logic internal consistency you know that sort of thing and so it really I think I, I learned how to be a lean composer and really really um cut out anything that doesn't fit and and really n- focus on motivic development very you know conservative mindset it's a very western way of organizing music and organizing sound but it's how i want music to go it's what i want music to do and that really helped me focus and he was hilarious too i wish i'd had a recorder back then to record all the tales he told but didn't have an <laughs> iphone it was no iphone in the early 90s
0: Well, we don't normally get into our our topics this early in the episode but since we've uh, breached the topic of your teachers uh Carly is I think going to tell us a little bit about what she learned about John Corigliano this week and we'd love to hear some more about him
1: yeah thanks Ben so I thought we would talk a little bit about John Corigliano today as he is one of Stephen's former teachers and also a really monumental composer who's had a huge influence really on the musical landscape of the 20th century Um, To give you an idea of the scope of Corleano's work, I'll start off with just a few quotes from his website, which is johncorleano.com. And I'll share just a few, but I I encourage you to go to his website and check out like so many prominent musicians. So here's a few of the highlights for me. This is Aaron Copeland, one of the most talented composers on the scene today. The real thing, his music is individual, imaginative, expertly crafted and hourly quite stunning. So, wow, nice, nice from Aaron Copeland. Um, Yo-Yo Ma says this, he says, John Corleano is simply one of our great American composers. He has both a vision for his music and the craft to back it up. As a teacher, he is passionate about transmitting knowledge of his art form to students, as well as to the general audience. I feel lucky that John and I are living in the same era. Wow, cool. Um, Leonard Bernstein says, John Corleano is one of the most talented composers I know of today. Um, and like I said, check out check out more. There's so many, like Marin Alsop has a beautiful quote up there, um, Joshua Bell too. Just like, wow, you, you kind of realize the, the impact this man has had on, on so many people. In our field and, and I'm sure, you know, outside of our field as well. Um, Corleano is a highly decorated composer. He's won four Grammys, an Oscar, a Pulitzer Prize, and a Grammy Award for music composition. He's written for orchestra, for solo instruments, for chamber ensembles. He's written an opera, he's written film scores and choral works. Um, he comes from a musical family. His father, who was also named John, was the concert master of the New York Philharmonic from 1943 to 1966, and his mother was a pianist and a piano teacher in New York. He studied at Columbia University and at the Manhattan School of Music in New York, and later after school he was an assistant to Leonard Bernstein with the production of his Young People's Concerts, so if you've seen any of those legendary videos i like i've watched those for so long i had no idea john Curliano was involved in that so that's that's very cool i would say among his most notable works is um, his symphony number one which was composed in 1991 and expresses Curliano's grief at the loss of over 100 friends to the aids epidemic it's a really really powerful work have any of you had a chance to either hear it live or perform it
0: i have not and i'm ashamed to say that like when i heard about it on this uh, interview i was like oh i need to check that like i need to listen to it and i haven't listened to it yet but (laughs) but it's on my list it's
4: amazing yeah it's amazing it's... it's the piece that drew me to him and the reason i went to study with him
1: wow cool um i i got to perform it actually um one of my first years down here in south florida I was hired to play extra percussion with lynn university and they were playing Corleano Symphony. I'd never heard it before, um, but it, it it's just hugely powerful. I encourage y'all to check it out. And actually, a, a side note, it was, I think, the first and probably only time I've ever broken a chime string by playing the chimes so loud. <laughs> the conductor kept asking for, like, more and more. It's got to be more. And I'm using, like, the hardest chime hammers I've ever used. And it, it was in, I think, dress rehearsal. It wasn't in the performance, but it just snaps and falls. like that that's all i could do
3: they think we're louder than we are right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah.
4: (laughs) those composers
3: you know what i like i like joseph schwantner and the mountains rising nowhere because he's just like 12 triangles
4: yeah that's almost enough
3: like yeah that's all right that's almost enough yeah, yeah that's right you're you're gonna hear 12 of them that's right
1: so I I listened to an interview with John Corigliano that was, it's episode 60 from a series called Living the Classical Life, and he talks a bit about the creative process in ways that were kind of surprising to me, knowing the just amount of works that he's composed and like the scope of and depth and breadth of everything. I, I wouldn't have expected him to, to speak about creating this way. So in, in this interview, Corigliano says, I never feel joyful when composing. He says, composing is a battle for me of me fighting my demons, of ignorance. And he says, I try to compose and usually nothing happens for a while. I'm very frustrated. It's like squeezing a stone for a drop of water. Um, Later, he's asked about composing again in the future, kind of what are are you working on? What do you think you'll do? And he says he has no desire to enter that horrible world of composing again. I think at the date of this recording, he was approaching 80 years old. He's I I think 81 or 82 now. And he says, trying to get himself worked up enough to get to that dark place where he composes and and just using this really evocative language. Um, And when he's asked about motivation for composing, he mentions fear as the great motivator, the, the fear of having accepted a commission and having to, now I've got to produce something. Um, so he, he also talks a little bit about how difficult it is to be in the in the hall in the audience for a premiere of a new work. How he avoided it for many years, pacing backstage nervously and just waiting for something to go wrong. And even when he is in the hall, he's not enjoying it. He's just like like waiting for waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like what's going to go wrong? Um, and I, I think many of us, at least at some point in our lives, and hopefully often in our musical lives and careers have glamorized ideas about what it means to be a musician, you know, to be following our passion and our creativity. But, you know, at the same time, it's not always joyful, creative expression and, you know, all, all just fun and games. Sometimes what we do can can be very, very challenging and very difficult work. So I, I wonder what you all think of, about this and especially Stephen, uh, when you were studying with him. Did you know about this side of his creative process? And, and is there a part of you that identifies at all with, with this, this side I would, of composing?
0: I, I would like to let Steve uh, answer that question, but I will say that Steve definitely knows about that because I've heard him talk about it before.
4: <laughs> yeah, you in know. Great yes, everything John said in that interview, um, it's not new. I mean, he said that his whole life, um, and I agree with every word of it. It is not fun to compose. To be fair, he's always said that after he finished a piece, and he's like, "I don't think I think I'm done. I think I'm not going to compose anymore." And that's a running joke among all of his students, or all of my friends. i mean, like, you know, I, I think I'm done. I don't, I don't have anything left. He's been saying that for 25 years. Oh wow! Um, so I I know the feeling very very well. And in fact, where I am currently in my own life is probably the least motivated to compose I've ever been. Um, that's a whole other topic. We don't have to go there, at least not right now. Um, but he's he's spot on and it is true it's especially when you are writing these really large works and in his case i mean once you achieve some measure of fame the pressure only increases and and what i always say i'm certainly not on his level i'm I'm no john carliano but i've had in my little niche a decent amount of success enough so that there are expectations when i write another piece from at least this small circle of people um and that only makes it harder Uh, And also, I hadn't didn't realize they don't teach you this as a young composer that all those particular voicings and chords you love. Well, once you've done those 12 different times and 12 pieces, what do you do, then I still love them, but I've already written all those pieces and so I found that composing is getting more difficult. And I think this probably for all of us as we become more aware and you become better at your craft, you become more aware of the flaws and the things you don't know. This is nothing new uh, for any of us, but well, to live it, you know, I mean, I'm 48 now. So it's I'm not a young composer anymore. And I really feel the weight of all that. Sorry, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. I've had an amazing, amazing life and career. And it's been awesome. Yeah, everything he says about that. And if you haven't seen that interview, it, it, it's really great. Um, it I feel it down to my bones.
3: Do you also feel like the more you get known, the more popular you get, the more scrutiny, like the more you have to produce, like the more ears and eyes are on on your work?
4: Yes. I mean, if, again, I'm not anywhere on his level, but within my small initial world that I've experienced that, Um, the only solution is to stop thinking about that and don't worry about that at all. And I think probably for each of you as performers, you can't think about what they're going to think about you playing. Certainly if you get to play in front of someone who you've revered, you can't think about that or else it's really going to mess you up. So that's the only solution I found is just to focus inward. And I spent a lot of time in this room, just composing and being focused inward as a composer. So um, that's that's what I do.
0: One th- I I had kind of, like I mentioned, I'd kind of heard Kurgliano's general vibe, pardon me, uh, with you know I feeling distraught as a composer and all that sort of thing. Uh, but one thing that I did not know until this uh, interview was that they said basically, I, I guess I can I could parallel with like, I, there are certain composers you sort of pigeonhole into to a genre like John Mackey is generally a band composer, he writes a lot of band works of all different levels, but they're generally for band. Whereas, Corleano, it sounds like he's not interested in writing the same medium over and over again, which I think like you would like to get experience in, and be able to use your experience to draw on but like, he's written an opera, a trombone concerto, he, he talks about he's written three symphonies, but one is for symphony orchestra, one is for string orchestra, and one is for band. It's like, that seems so difficult that you wouldn't ever uh, revisit a medium enough to, uh, in a sense, master it. But maybe that's like his genius is that he doesn't get stuck in in one you know, idea.
4: Well, he, he won't take a commission until he has a reason to write the piece, not the contract and the money, but something musical or in the piece, the project. For example, the Pied Piper, uh, his flute concerto. He didn't want to take that until he hit upon, oh, that storyline and a reason to use those instruments in this way, not just I'm going to write a flute concerto. And then that a lot of things came from that. And so he's always been that way. So I guess if you know he finds a reason to write a, a particular piece, but he's not going to write a concerto again for that same instrument, I think he's found that, unless I guess some idea popped in, but he has written a saxophone concerto that was supposed to premiere a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco, obviously is not. Um, So since that interview in 2018 that you're referencing, he's actually written two or three things, I think a second opera actually. And that's the running joke too. He always said he would never write an opera, never write a symphony, um, and he did both.
1: I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It makes me think of um, like the complex that we hear about Brahms having, you know, that he avoided writing the first symphony for so long, kind of being in the shadow of Beethoven.
4: Yeah, I mean, calling something a symphony is a big deal. I've actually never called anything a symphony. I've written a bunch of big pieces that are very symphonic in scope and nature, but I don't use that word.
1: <laughs> so maybe we have you on record now saying, I've never written this. And maybe when you write it, we'll be like, there it is just like Corleano saying maybe I'm out of ideas I don't know I think I'm done
4: uh, someday maybe I'll write a symphony but man <laughs> that just sounds so pretentious too I'm always I, I don't know I
0: also for a lot of modern composers a, a symphony is like a very locked in genre like it's generally four movements and like Steve's written what I would call like symphonic poems hopefully that's like you would somewhat agree with it it's like you know it's a large-scale symphonic work but it, it's not so 19th century formalized structure.
4: Yeah. I mean, the music takes the shape the music needs to take. And I I try not to think about those things, although I, I imagine having a symphonic form laid out in front of you, OK, now I know what I'm going to do and it's going to follow this. But knowing me, it would then go off the rails. I mean, John Curliano always has all of his students, and he does this himself, map out a piece beforehand with colored pencil sketches. And you probably, I don't know if you've heard him talk about that. Um, we've all had to do that. Uh, I don't do it exactly anymore. There'll be some, but I also just use prose and just describe to myself what's going to happen in the piece. But that top-down structure, thinking about that. And then you don't have to stick to the plan exactly, but at least having some sort of plan helps a whole lot. I feel
3: like we're 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 so in the territory of what one of the most common questions is, which I'm sure you get all the time and that is like what motivates you to write a piece, what inspires you to write a piece, what what information do you need to like do it? And of course, the one of the common answers is, you know, it's just hard work. And I think we're saying it's really really hard work. Can you I don't know, can can you expand on what is so hard about it, and maybe maybe why this is such a m- mysterious part of composition for people? Like, why so many people want to know that? You know, like, well, what do you do when you're not motivated? What what's your compositional <laughs> process? It's like all all this this whole topic we're talking about is is all hovering around those common questions.
4: Yeah, and I always get that question if I'm talking to students or anyone. Um, I really need to think about a way to explain it because it's 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 not necessarily mysterious it really is work it's sitting here playing with ideas that you hate and like yep oh no that i'm just getting that from x or yeah i did that in this or and then finally you find something that catches your ear some reason whether it's just a sonority or just a melodic turn of phrase or some tiny little thing that says i could do something with this um and uh, my good friend eric whitaker another student of Criliano, um calls it the golden brick. That's his metaphor for that. And then you can build something with it. Of course, then there's the work of building the thing, but then that's that's just doing it. And for me, I'm very inefficient. I write a lot of music and I throw out or remove most of it. Probably about two thirds of what I write does not make it into the final piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a young composer, because it's so much work anyway, just the physicality of getting it all into the computer or writing it all down and then to get rid of it um it's really difficult but it's necessary i think stephen king calls it i don't know if he's the one said you have to kill your children i mean it's it's like yeah you have to you have to let go of those things even if they stand alone as little beautiful moments if it doesn't serve the larger whole it has to go and so there's just an immense amount of time because it's a very slow process and then you throw out a lot of stuff and you have it's always you know two steps back and um so the inefficiency of it it's just there's just a lot of time where there's a lot of just drudgery punctuated by brief moments of euphoria and those are what keep me going Mm -hmm. like when the thing sort of the puzzle sort of solves itself in your brain you know like oh that fits and that's how i get to here and then that implies this and oh i'm referencing and when that sort of you're writing on top of some sort of subconscious puzzle solving that's happening but that only comes when you've spent hundreds of hours in that sonic world to begin with certainly for these large pieces Mm And I don't know any other way that you have to invest all that time first, so that you can start having those neural connections. And then the thing all sort of snowballs at the end. Um, and it's fun to see it all come together, but I have not found a shortcut to that. Cool. I don't know if I answered your question, but I talked a whole lot, so there you go. Yeah, no, it's great. Cause
3: it, I mean, I feel like we've heard the answer to that question so many times, but I think what what's more interesting is like why, Why is that such a a mysterious thing? Um, Because I think people who do compose like that, you know, they know the answer, but they also know, like you said, like, hey, you know, it's what's the saying, y'all, like it's 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration. It's like, yeah, Yeah. it's just like hard. It's just hard work. And those little moments of of uh, light bulb above the head are real short and fleeting. And those little moments of inspiration
4: are short and fleeting. And then on top of that, after that, it's just just doing it yeah i think a lot of student composers or young composers i talk to they you know the common thing is they have they've written one phrase and it it resolves and then they, well what happens next mm-hmm. well two things come up with melodic material or harmonic material that doesn't circle back to a resolution it always leads you away so causing some tension and um think larger don't think about that one phrase and then what happens next like francis Macbeth always called it just scotch taping chords together one after one and not thinking about what is the reason why how am i shaping time and that's how i think of it as a composer our job is to shape your experience of time as a listener um and so i try to imagine sitting in the hall also just like well what would be really cool to experience right now
2: i want to ask a question about this idea that uh one's music isn't good enough when when they're writing it and it seems like it comes from a place of humility, but also sort of self-consciousness. And I wonder, you know, if, if we were to sort of dissect this and look at it as who is our, who is the critic who we care about the most besides ourselves in the outside world for you, would that be your old mentors hearing your piece and telling you what they think? Or would it be the consortium members sharing how they enjoyed your commission or the students? And I I just recall this anecdote that Martin Brasnick uh, told us on the podcast of how uh, Ligeti would have these nine hour lessons. They would would have these nine hour lessons and what would get sort of etched in his brain is the moment when Ligeti says, Martin, you are not allowed to write another ugly bar ever again. <laughs> and that Just was that. what really scarred him and moved him in certain directions, so he felt very much under the impression. I wonder, who is it for you as a mature composer?
4: That is a great question. You know, no single name is popping in. I I want my wife to like it, and she hears everything. out. She's a conductor, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she conducts all my music and she also has a really great ear for in the middle of the process, like, now you really need to cut that, or this is going on too long. And I disagree with her. And then I take her advice and she's right. Um, so that's, uh, that happened with my saxophone concerto. Um, yeah. yeah. A massive, <laughs> massive chunk that I just loved. And she said, that's gotta go. And she was right. That's all it. That- also my peers, my, composers that I've about my age, my friends that we went to school together. um, Eric Whitaker, he and I bounce ideas off of each other all the time, especially when we're stuck. Um, We have these long discussions and talk each other down. (laughs) Um, John Mackey, Joel Puckett, Jonathan Newman, Jim Bonney. These are a bunch of people that have, you know, I've gone to school with and, and their opinions matter a whole lot to me because we know each other and we're also about the same age. So we have the same sort of, learned lived experience you know and and cultural kind of reference points and that sort of thing but ultimately i just want you know i I want it to connect with the musicians who are playing it especially when i'm writing large ensemble music band music that sort of thing i really want the players especially if they're students to get an experience out of it um, and not just be machines for the production of the sounds that i want to hear you know that's a really good question i don't have a very specific answer i i mean obviously and you said aside from myself, but I have to like it.
2: Right of course. Of Just
3: course. Tell you, I like so much you talk about you really want to connect with the young students because I, I find myself saying it all the time to fellow teachers and even to myself, you know if a student comes in and they're uh, performing a certain what we'll call it a level of music, and you you think oh well they should really like this other level of music and then you um, you know I, I don't know it's it it doesn't make sense to go from you know level one to know <laughs> all of a sudden like it doesn't you know like well you we should meet them where they're at you know you yeah. should um, but like you said they should they should really really love it you want them to love it and I, I think we yeah we do need more of that like that has such a that has such a, a value to it I I, I was going to ask you um, What do you, uh, you you alluded to earlier that you're having like such a hard time right now being motivated to compose (laughs) and uh, it sounds like you might be willing to share, share with us uh, (laughs) what what that is and I think again that kind of contributes to the the big question that we were, we were getting at before about
4: inspiration and and hard work and and all of that. Sure, so I, I don't, I don't quite know how to crystallize or explain where I'm at probably because I'm not really sure. This predates the pandemic, but that's certainly focused this in the last two or three years. I just, I feel like I've written most of the pieces of music that I want to write. Certainly within the world of band and orchestra, and I've, I've had the incredibly good fortune to create the things I want to create and get paid to do them and get to hear them played at a high level repeatedly it's ridiculous i've had just so much good luck in my life you know ecstatic waters was one of those pieces which was written in 2008 where i integrated electronics with a large ensemble and i didn't know if it was going to work it was terrifying to do but i got the chance to do it and then to hear it repeatedly and then oh, yeah. 2 years ago we love it thank you yeah, thank you
3: love it love it love it yeah
4: <laughs> that's very nice of you 2 years ago i wrote a piece called the automatic earth which is sort of a follow up to it and I sort of reference it. It's even bigger, and the electronics go further, and it deals with climate change, and it's a dark piece because I—it's a really dark subject, and you know. And the deeper I went into that, and maybe that contributed to where I am now as well. It's—it's it's sort of trying to find relevance and trying to find music to spark that euphoria in me and in others, kind of a reason to write. It's exactly what I was watching that interview with John, and he was saying those same things. I'm like, oh, I think I've been here before. I just. And this is what my wife always tells me, you always say this, but it just seems deeper. And, and maybe it's the same sort of thing where I don't need to write another band piece. That's five, seven minute opener for a concert. I've got several. If you want to play one of those by me, go buy one. I've already written. Um, yeah, I could do it. I could come up with something and develop a motive and have some percussion come in and blah, blah, blah. Anything, anything, it's big woo, You know, and it, it's, I can do that, but it's why, um, I know the feeling i i've had people i want you to write me a
3: piece like this other piece you've already written and my response is exactly what you said like cool you should just play that other piece um bingo you know Um, you know it it reminds me of you know teaching music appreciation and you cover mozart and haydn and beethoven because that's the order they appear in the book and to students who you know aren't familiar with these composers very well and they're not studying music they're just here to you know take this as an elective class and they see like wow haydn wrote you know, like 100-plus symphonies, Mozart wrote 40, and Beethoven only wrote nine. But I think it's because, I mean, Beethoven's my favorite of the three, and I, th- I think it's very much uh, for the reason you're saying. It's like, well, of course, he could have cranked out, you know, the way Haydn sometimes wrongly gets criticized for just writing the same thing over and over, but there's certainly more overlap probably in Haydn in 104 symphonies than there are in uh, Beethoven nine symphonies, you know?
4: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's more of of exploring that same particular ideas and the intricacies of it over and over and again whereas beethoven was trying to reinvent himself in each and you know in the last 100 years composers have been i think and certainly in the western world been pushed to do that you cannot repeat yourself you must create from the form and the instrumentation everything from the ground up every time well i don't i don't agree with that either but yeah.
3: Yeah, someone said recently, you know, it's okay to steal from yourself. You know, like don't requote yourself, but steal from yourself. I think it was actually yes. uh, Franco Perez, a buddy of ours, percussionist and composer. um In studio class, he he came to visit us uh, last Wednesday. I, I think I think it was Franco that said that. But.
0: I was gonna say that. Well, the Corigliano <laughs> video talks about that too, where he's like, he oh. says like, you know, I wrote this one piano piece where it does this in the left hand, and then like a friend showed me like later, like, oh, you did the same thing here. <laughs> he's like, I didn't. Yeah. Know but yeah. Well, Steve you, you kind of like I w- I had this like great like segue and I was so excited and you kind of like stole my thunder but I was gonna say Sorry. the great Liano thing he kind of talks about you know like it, it's so it sounds like it's so great to have a reason to write a piece and that reason can can be uh very personal or it could just be you know to tell a story and I mean uh, I I'm almost like want to ask. Don't worry, this isn't my question. It's like, do you ever like feel like you wrote too good of a piece in Ecstatic Waters that everyone just wants to play that over and over and not explore the newer like big band works? And uh, the last time that I visited with Steve in person, uh, he was here. I guess it was probably right before the pandemic, and uh, he wrote this piece that that he mentioned already called the Automatic Earth um and it reminded me so much of the Corigliano thing with writing the piece for you know he had a hundred friends die in the aids epidemic that's like absolutely massive and climate change is upon us and you know affecting us all and on all of our minds and the automatic earth it's it's steve already said it so i feel okay saying this like it's it's pretty similar to ecstatic waters in some ways but like what's Ecstatic Waters about? Well, it's a piece that sounds cool. What's the Automatic Earth about? It's about climate change. Like it's it's actually a lot more in depth. Uh, so Steve, could you tell us some more about the Automatic Earth now that I've fumbled through a terrible question that you sort of already answered?
4: <laughs> I'd be delighted to. The Automatic Earth is a difficult piece. It was difficult to write. It's not necessarily like, hey, climate change is bad, everybody. Let's do something about it because we don't need problem pieces or that sort of thing. It's it's more of an interior exploration of it because the deeper you go the more you realize it's we're ensnared in these systems that are doing the degradation so we all need to personally you know change our habits as much as possible but that's not going to solve it it has to come from a top-down structural systemic change to the way all of society functions that's all I mean, we just have to change everything. I mean, I don't think human society has ever done that before, not without great upheaval and suffering. Um, and so there we are. And me flying around the country to hear performances of it is making the problem itself worse. So I'm, you know, hypocritical. Somebody said, I, I had a t shirt made for the premiere that has a logo, Automatic Earth. And somebody said, Oh, you should make those and sell those. And I was like, Well, yeah, but do you know how much water cotton production uses? And like, I. <laughs> You just, every, you cannot move within the system without doing damage. And so being that, living that awareness in this web of destruction, like uh, it's paralyzing. Um, That being said, I wrote the piece anyway, and it's, I'm pretty proud of it. It ends darkly, ambiguously, um, and probably not many people are gonna play it because of that. Ecstatic Waters has a big, happy, beautiful, warm, big, warm hug of a Hollywood ending. And turns out people like that more.
3: It's really encouraging to me, like, you know, when COVID hit and flights were canceled, I know we mentioned it on the show, but all of a sudden, like, you know, the water was clear for the first time and gosh, you know, hundreds of years in Vienna, like the rivers were clear and all, you know, just like a week of no travel. Did, like, uh, you so see, that far.
0: would be Venice.
3: Oh, what did I say? Vienna. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe in the, what? There's no rivers in Vienna. Give it another
4: hundred years. We'll have plenty of water in Vienna probably. Yeah. Yeah. What? No, no water all in right. Vienna? How
3: do you know? No. There's probably some water in there somewhere. No, thank you very much. Yeah, but it's just very encouraging. Like, you know, I don't know, like getting the message out there. Yeah, even if it's yeah it does, yeah, there is some cost to it. You know, yeah, it's, of course, it's, it's a cost well done, you know.
2: Well, uh, Stephen, you have also expressed a huge interest, as it appeared to me, uh, uh, into uh, singularity or for singularity, sorry, and Ray Kurzweil's concepts and this whole idea of transhumanism and so on. And um, I just had a conversation with my brother earlier today all about the humans leaving this planet and how that would help the planet and help the humans and uh, creating hybrid humans and machines and so on. (laughs) And then we got to the conversation of how come the AI has not influenced art so much or music and I'm wondering if you have any any thoughts on on that singularity in music what do you think might might happen because we've had these we have these composers there's um, what's her name Emily Howell the composer that exists um, virtual composer or AI um, and plenty of successful work that came out there but it doesn't seem like humans latch onto it like we don't follow it. It's sort of like more like a, an article in the news that's interesting, and then we, mm. we leave it. What do you think about singularity in art? I know that's. <laughs> oh,
4: well, I could talk about the singularity in transhumanism, and maybe I'll do that in a second. Um, as far as artificial intelligence, which itself is a, such a broad term, there's varieties of that. Is it strong or weak? You know, and uh, what we mean by those terms. But actually, I think you see computers as tools enhancing what's possible with composing and with playing i mean the integration of electronics each step doesn't seem like it gets to get labeled artificial intelligence or maybe it does in a hyped article but then it kind of becomes commonplace um and then so it's stepwise it encroaching in the way we make music and the way we um create all sorts of art but then we don't really call it artificial intelligence anymore there are these word generation poem generation machines which i would love to you know, like a a neural net that you can then feed it a bunch of stuff and then it'll generate more material. I thought about using that to create some texts, but it's such an enormous subject and I am not well-versed in the breadth of what's going on out there, but there are people, what's his name? Tepfer? Is it Daniel Tepfer? Pianist, who has some programming where he'll play some stuff and what he improvises gets fed back and, and, and interacts with him and he's made some really great videos. I hope I got the name right um really fascinating stuff so i think there's plenty of examples of that happening but then it becomes normalized and we move to the next level and so incrementally it doesn't seem like i don't know what what to you would represent a significant a a, a fundamental transformation of what it is to make music or make art as a human versus a transhuman
2: well, for me, it's it more, the, the question more sort of laid upon the idea that when, when are humans going to maybe consume more art created by AI than created by humans? Because if you can feed this AI all this information and they spit out in the matter of seconds, you know, a thousand fantastic works of art, then, you know, are we ever going to sort of lean into that more, or does it matter to us so much that it comes from a human being because it's limited, because we place value on the fact that it cannot be reproduced ad nauseum, you know? Um,
4: I think I have this sense, and that's certainly not scientific, but I have a sense that it's possible to program a Stephen Bryant algorithm with enough information that would compose music that sounds like me. Um,
3: David, I would Cull. love hmm? yeah. Yeah, David Cope, that's the Emily Howe. He yeah. created the Emily yeah. Howell AI. Yeah. Yeah.
4: I have this sense that that's possible, having written enough music that I see what I tend to do. Um, on the other side, though, there are these, I'm also having new experiences and growing, hopefully, and writing. I, I, and I'm trying to surprise myself when I write. Um, and I'm not sure that an algorithm will then do that. Will it faithfully recreate, or not recreate, but generate based on that input? But will it then seek out new input and warp its own programming, and I think that's what we try to do as composers. Um, ultimately, who knows? I we'll, we'll see. But the future is going to be very strange, very strange. And that was part of the Automatic Earth. It's not just things are going to get bad, but they're going to get strange because as humanity comes under more pressure to survive, technology is going to race even further ahead. We are going to try some desperately crazy things, and we're gonna. It's going to get very strange, very fast.
3: If any of you are kind of um, wondering some of these names, check out composer David Cope. Look up, like, David Cope Vivaldi. And, I mean, it it really, really sounds like Vivaldi. But I think, yeah, I I agree with um, the the question Ksenia asked there about, like, do people really care if it's not by humans? Apparently, you know, because we're still writing. We still want to hear what people are writing. And even though David Cope, I mean, gosh, since, like, the 60s, he's been writing these these computer programs that are just ones and zeros that, you know, will just output... Not just Bach, but like early Bach, late Bach, early Vivaldi. And I mean, it's really, really, really good. Um, And I know on the show, gosh, years ago, I reported on a bunch of um, scientists and artists that did it with Rembrandt paintings as well. You know, they're replicating not actual Rembrandts, but Rembrandt algorithm paintings that don't exist that are strikingly similar to Rembrandt's. But yet... I've never heard about it since then. It's like they did it and they said, okay, that was cool and we can do it. And so it kind of shows what the technology can do. And um, yeah, so I don't know if people really care about the human aspect of it, it seems, at least for now. Uh, But maybe, yeah, like Stephen, you're saying, you know, it's like, yeah, what is it gonna take until the AI makes like a a significant breakthrough or change?
0: I actually, just to maybe sort of draw this to somewhat of a a close this little bit, I, I actually saw Steve Wozniak uh, co-founder of Apple Talk a few years ago, uh, and he was talking about artificial intelligence. And he said, you know, Google has this thing where you can show it a thousand pictures of dogs and it'll correctly identify a dog after that 95% of the time. He's like, an, an eight-year-old can do that 100% of the time. <laughs> like, and if you think about dogs, they're, you know, dogs can look very different. Uh, but then he also had this little joke about, uh, there were these two scientists that actually figured out how to like recreate a, a human brain uh and it took them about nine months. <laughs> so <laughs> um, but well, uh, unless someone has some some other AI thing, uh, we should probably get moving into a couple of Facebook or Instagram questions here. Um, we had Steve a, a Facebook question from Ben Roboshow, and uh some people at our, our little chat here were a little confused by it, but I think I can actually bring to light what he's asking. Uh he says, Hi, Steven. Can you compare and contrast your approach to writing for percussion versus electronics when composing a piece for wind ensemble and electronics? They seem to have a similar compositional approach with very rewarding differences and nuances, thanks. And if I could just like maybe sort of given a uh, real world example of this, uh, when I was a student uh, at UNT, we played Ecstatic Waters and we uh, took it on this uh, tour to University of Cincinnati for the WASB conference and Steve was on that tour. But before that, we had what they called the conductors' collegium, and they had uh, student conductors conduct the wind ensemble, and they were not going to mess with electronics for that. So, some actually transcribed what Steve had written for electronics, and we're like trying to replicate it like the little weird bleeps and bloops on like muffled triangles sitting on a table so i think what they're asking is why sorry if you didn't know about that one steve uh but why why would you write something that's so percussive in nature for electronics versus a live performer
4: uh so when do i choose what's going to be electronic sounds and who gets why not a live performer i try to give as much as possible to live performers but there are certain things such as uh in ecstatic waters this rhythmic grooves that there's a certain intricacy to it and an absolute mechanistic precision to it that I want. In the fourth movement, the whole point is, in fact, it has the word machine in the title. I want it to sound machine-like. I don't want it to be someone who can play really precise, hopefully. I want it to be exactly the same every time. And that tension between that and live players is part of what I want you to experience. Um, And also, when I'm writing with electronics for bands, there's also the non non Rhythmic stuff, just these long flowing sounds that don't have to breathe. Electronics don't have to breathe. Um, You can fill in the frequency space way up high and really low, but very soft things that a band doesn't do very well. Um, So, around the edges, sort of looking for the places to augment what the players themselves can't do. But if a human can do it, um, I generally want the humans to be front and center still in my concert music. It is concert music. We're sitting in a hall. There are musicians on stage. I want to see and hear them play and augment what they do and not eclipse it. So that's sort of my operating philosophy.
3: It's such a good point. Like it's not. I think sometimes people listen to tape pieces and they think, "Oh, it's you know, if it's not new sounds, what's the point?" But you just explained it so well. I mean, yeah, it's not just about a new sound always. It can be about what they can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like yeah, like a like like volume distinction
4: um, at a certain frequency or something. Yeah, I want to use as little as possible. In Exotic Waters, there's no electronic sounds for the first seven minutes of the piece, nothing in the first movement, and that's intentional. And they sort of sneak in, and it transforms you. You know, I want to confuse you and and, and deceive you as well. It's like, was that electronic? Is that not what's going right. on? Right, yeah, I remember having that exact, exact same thought. Yes. And it, yeah, works so well. It's very cool.
2: We had another question on Instagram from, I'm going to read the handle, new salius i'm sorry blame it on my uh, country where i come from but the question is uh what is percussion's greatest musical limitation
4: oh wow i mean i know we're on a percussion podcast i was sort of surprised you all asked me to be on here because i haven't written that much for percussion um not independently certainly um greatest musical limitation i don't know that you know the the percussion world is the problem i find writing for it is that there are no limitations there's just so much it's not a single instrument it's not here's an oboe and what an oboe can do. It's anything you want to find in a junkyard, anything. And so, you know, maybe long, really sustained sounds that are not rolls on mallet instruments. So, but there are ways to do that too. that That's probably the first thing just from a craft perspective. Like I want to make long, sustained pad sounds or, you know, I, I'm used to that with winds and strings. So that's the one thing I can think of that I would miss but it's just a compositional problem to solve, and it certainly can be.
1: I love the answer because we think. I think as performers, we think about the limitations of all of our instruments quite a bit. We think, "Gosh, I'm transcribing this on marimba, and I wish I could have more sustain," or, or you know, whatever. So, like, rolls on snare drum even sometimes aren't aren't what we want. But I love that. Like, actually, we're kind of limitless. It's nice. Yeah, um, Steve, I wanted to ask you, um, since it is a percussion podcast, do you have do you have a favorite percussion instrument to write for or instrument group or at least favorite or <laughs> any thoughts come to mind about that?
4: Um, I am I often use vibraphone uh, for some of those qualities that we just talked about. Certainly, I just I just love it. And the mallet instruments are so useful. But I almost never write for snare drum. In a band context, it is immediately a March mm-hmm. or, um, it's immediately it, banned. It's immediately banned. <laughs> this is a band <laughs> piece or you know, a fifties piece, you know, snare drum and, and temple blocks. It's like, just, I, ugh. um, I have used the snare drum a couple of times, one in a piece I wrote that's a March, uh, and another one, the end of the concerto for wind ensemble, which is supposed to totally rock out. And then I want it to be, it's a drum set. So it's very specific, but snare drum to me is like, this is a, this is a style it connotes an entire world and if you don't want that world you can't use that instrument i can't um but pretty much everything else is fair game and i love it um it is i mean i mean it is i make that
3: point to students uh in in performance you know when we say okay well, well i'm this is orchestral snare drum or this is rudimental snare drum it's like you know what it's all rudimental snare drum it's an, a military instrument even when you're playing orchestral snare drum you're playing military drum it's military like that is yeah. what it is it is one of those like yeah very very characteristic I was actually going to ask along these same lines when you're when you're working with students are there certain pieces you like to go to to uh, explain good percussion writing like is there a favorite I don't know you know a, a favorite Crigliano um, favorite Schwantner favorite, uh, I don't know, whole suite, something like that, that you say, Hey, this is great (laughs) percussion
4: writing. You should study this. Um, you know, I I don't know why this piece just popped in mind. It's, uh, David Meslanka's Montana music, three, uh, dances for percussion. Um, which is a lot of extremely quiet music for a long time. And I happened to just by coincidence be at the premiere of that at Midwest Clinic in Chicago in 1993 when I was an undergrad. And I was at that, I just went to this 8.30 in the morning concert in a ballroom and the Central Michigan University Percussion Ensemble played that piece and David Maslanka was there. And I didn't know anything about what was coming. And I was utterly entranced. One, that it's so quiet for so long, and it's a percussion ensemble mm. um, and then it's totally not quiet for a little bit. Um, that, that sort of space and delicacy uh, is a really great, I, I think, model. Um, I'm thinking of John Cariliano's Altered States soundtrack, which as far as just the orchestra, orchestrational ideas, I'm trying to remember the percussion writing in there too, and just everything he does in there is so utterly unbelievable. That if you haven't seen that movie Altered States from the early 80s, it's a cheesy movie, but his soundtrack to it is incredible. And then the concert suite from it, it it it's mind-blowing. Cool. Also, yeah, anyway, I could go off. the Hollywood musicians. What you're hearing on the soundtrack, this is all aleatoric stuff and dotted bar lines, and it's totally, you know, you have to you have to rehearse this. What you're hearing on the soundtrack is their second read-through. That's how fast they got it. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm sure I'll think of some better answers after we. Like leave meeting. Oh, that's cool. No, that's great.
0: Steve, it's so funny hearing you talk about David Mislanka like that because uh, I remember uh, Gary Green talked about David Mislanka and he said a lot of a lot of his pieces, the first five ten minutes are just him clearing his throat, <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's just in in the most beautiful way. Just like brutally slow to get started up, and I, I hope you take this as a compliment. But a lot, and some of your music, like Ecstatic Waters, is an example of like it, it seems like you know like David Mislanka 2.0, David Mislanka with electronics, like they, they, they're they so slow to unfold. And it's like, you know, like you can kind of make a joke about like, this is taking forever, but it's also beautiful that you don't just kind of like rush into it and, and start hitting us over the head with it. Um, but uh, we had one other Facebook question and it's funny you mentioned uh, vibraphone because Shiloh Stroman asks, when will you compose a vibraphone concerto?
4: <laughs> Hi Shiloh, I haven't seen that guy in a long time. Um, we can start the uh,
0: consortium right here if you want. Oh, no, no,
4: <laughs> you know, so I wrote, I've written four concerti, um, cello, piano, saxophone, and trombone. And after I wrote the trombone concerto with Alessi, oh, that's just, oh, that's going to be five years ago, was the premiere, holy crap. Um, I swore off concerti for a little while, um,
0: you know i just found out this is actually the 100th birthday of the vibraphone this year if that's any inspiration oh look at
4: you putting the pressure on (laughs) you know one from a from just a musical standpoint it's really difficult because i love playing all the different instruments off of each other and with the concerto that one instrument kind of needs to be out front and center and play a lot you know if you If they don't, if they spend 30 minutes not playing, (laughs) then that's not really the point of the piece. So there's this really practical consideration that can rub up against what I want musically to happen. So just like with Coriliano, finding a solution, a reason for that instrument to be featured is really critical. You know, if I found that reason and that sparky, I would write a a vibraphone or probably more than just one instrument percussion concerto. That would be fun to do someday, but that day is not today.
0: (laughs) What better reason than a 100th birthday? <laughs> 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 well, Steve, seeing as really kind of talking about uh, writing your, your approach to writing for percussion, and I, I hope I'm not divulging anything that I'm not allowed to in saying this, but uh, it's on your website, so I think it's okay. Uh, you, When we last talked in person, you were working on a piece for Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, which I'm guessing was probably somewhat derailed by the pandemic. Um, but if you're not familiar with this group, the wonderful percussionist Ian Rosenbaum is the percussionist in that group. And uh, Steve, not not in any in depth uh, amount, was was sort of asking me about like you know I don't I don't know what I'm gonna you know pick for percussion instruments, and I, I don't know what this is gonna be. And I think you. I maybe I'm remembering wrong, but you might have even talked about writing for percussion ensemble as well, but I could Mm -hmm. totally be making that up. Maybe that was a dream I had. But could you tell us about those uh, upcoming projects?
4: Absolutely. You're dreaming about me. I like that. Um, (laughs) So Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, PME. Yes, the premiere was supposed to be last summer. Um, They've just voted to not play live this summer as well. So it's going to be 2022. Uh, It's like an evening length work there. Piero Plus professionals they meet all summer in Pittsburgh they're amazing musicians but they yeah, it, anyway it's going to be a really big work um mostly around Magritte paintings uh right now I've um I have a movement that is for percussion and piano it's really aggressive it's based on the listening room uh, Magritte's painting that one and he has a bunch of metal pipes Ian's playing a bunch of metal pipes um and a bass drum and some vibraphone it's really sparse and kind of in- uh, intense with some electronics that he'll be triggering as well. I don't know what else is going to be that he's going to do yet, but the the kind of the overriding interesting thing about that is the entire audience is wearing headphones and they're using uh, an Ambisonic mic, um, and that's involved. And so you're experiencing both live and and pre-recorded stuff all through headphones, even though you're in the hall watching them play. But with that Ambisonic, that head mic that that um, Neumann makes it. You can move that around, set that in the player. So instead of you sitting in the audience, you're sitting right where we put you. Um, so we're really playing with a sense of space and sound as well for that um, and trying to figure out how to use that compositionally, which I'm still wrapping my head around. Uh, and then the percussion ensemble commission is it's on hold as so many things are right now. I don't know for sure whether it's going to happen or not. that was it's a commission from pas. Um there's several of us. And so I don't know when that's gonna happen or what form that's going to take. It was. I certainly haven't started on it, um, haven't signed any contracts yet, but it's something between a quartet and 10 people was what they said. So somewhere in there, maybe someday I'll write that. I would love to write a percussion ensemble piece. I'm also terrified by the idea. But as Crollano says, the motivation comes from the fear when you accept the, I accept these commissions. Like, I don't know how to do this, but I'm gonna sign my name to it and hopefully I'll, I'll find a solution.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you talk about using space and uh, maybe you hadn't come up with that yet when we, we talked, cause that doesn't ring a bell at all. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, Corigliano, it seems, is very interested in like offstage ensembles and like Circus Maximus. There's a marching band that comes through the crowd, which, by the way, I saw that piece performed when I was 18 years old and had no idea what I was seeing. It's overwhelming. Uh, But uh, yeah, well, excellent. Well, Steve, so great to hear from you. Um, And I think that will probably be about it for this episode. We will see everyone on the next one, episode 273.
4: Thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thanks, Steve. Great.